Hi, I'm Scott Dunn, and welcome to the first season of Voices of ULI, a podcast brought to you by the Urban Land Institute Asia Pacific. In conversation with thought leaders and industry experts, I'll be asking them to reflect personally on their career journeys, particularly on the actions that they've made that have had significant impact on land use and development today, and what their vision holds for the future of our communities that we live in. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Simon Tracy, who's the CEO of Private Equity Real Estate at Capital Land Investments. Simon, welcome to Voices of ULI. I want to uh, start with your early years. Um, where, where was it that you grew up and what kind of community did you grow up in? Well, I, I suppose I've been a consumer of cities, I would say, over the decades. My father was in a commercial bank and we moved around about 15 cities around Australia, including Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, but completed my high school and college in, in Brisbane and joined Land Lease and then went down to uh, Sydney, which is a fabulous city for about five years before I ventured up to Asia in 1996. In, in that time period, when was it that you started to get interested in real estate or development? Um, was there a, you know, something that really kind of stood out as a, as a moment where you started to understand more about real estate overall? I don't think so. I mean, I think real estate's about people, it's about communities, it's about government, private sector. And I observed all of that in the different cities from the mining towns to the, the more commercial towns uh, to the to the mega cities in Australia, you know, the, the Sydney's, you know, the, the Melbournes. Um, so I think real estate really just crept up on me, to be honest. And I got into real estate from infrastructure. Um, and that's actually how I got into Asia. It was in an infrastructure role, um, and that evolved into real estate as the Asian financial crisis started to unravel. And at that time, Land Lease needed me to come and help work out a lot of those situations. So those, I guess those early days in Land Lease, um, what kind of deals were you working on or what kind of projects were you involved with? Well, initially, I came out of financial services. Lend-Lease owned a life insurance company called MLC. And that kind of, uh, you know, made me move ultimately into Lend-Lease, into the capital services division. And we were looking at private equity investments. And then I got into infrastructure through a joint venture Lend-Lease had with GE Capital, Structured Finance Group. And that was an Asian um, initiative to joint venture in funds management in infrastructure. So that was really kind of the commencement of my institutional investing kind of, um, you know, activities and, and work. What kind of infrastructure was it? Was it a specific type or was it kind of quite yeah, broad? It was, um, you know, ports, um, even back then, renewable energy, putting 54 megawatt Caterpillar power gen sets over old rubbish dumps and um, piping down to the methane gas to be the fuel for for the um, the generators. So that was that was back in the early 90s. So I've always had an interest in renewable energy and um, you know back in the day that that was very pioneering and um, 
um, you know, it was a bit of a cost disadvantage to coal, but there were certain subsidies and incentives to make it appealing for investors. And that certainly was one of the formidable deals in Australia in terms of renewable energy in that joint venture between Lendlease and GE Capital. Okay. And was most of that focused in Australia or is also elsewhere in in Asia? Well, that joint venture was Australia and New Zealand. And then I was actually sent by the directors to Singapore on secondment from Lendlease to GE Capital proper. So I worked down at the uh, one of the old Keppel buildings down in Tanjong Paga, working, you know, as essentially a, a GE Capital employee for a year or so until, as I mentioned earlier, the Asian financial crisis started to really unravel a, a lot of the Lendlease investments around the region. And that's when I was called back to help resolve and work through those situations from which emerged the real estate investment management as one of my kind of core competencies. And that evolved into real estate funds management with various opportunistic and value-added funds back in the day. And I I guess at that point, then there's a transition with um, Macquarie and then MGPA um, and a transition back into Asia and to Japan. And I guess, I mean, talk a little bit about that period and that transition. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting story. I mean, Lend-Lease in the day went very heavily internationally, particularly into the US. And, um, you know, that was quite challenging for Lend-Lease. And as a wash-up, there was a number of companies that were sold. And we were the GP for Lend-Lease Global Property Advisors. And that was the first true global opportunistic fund within Lend-Lease. So myself and colleagues did a management buyout in 2004 and therefore we became the owners of the GP, the company, that ultimately became MGPA. You reference Macquarie Bank. Um, We we sold 49% of the MBO company called Octar Capital Partners to Macquarie Bank about nine months after we did the MBO and we changed our names to Macquarie Global Property Advisors, and then we shortened that over time to just MGPA, and that really became the company that we grew very significantly around Asia and Europe, raising capital globally. And where was the first focus in terms of cities or geographies? Um, We'd raised about a half a billion dollars from 14 institutional investors, Dutch pension funds, Australian pension funds, et cetera. U.S. pension funds. The first investments were in London, um, Hong Kong, in Singapore, and then we evolved on to an Asian value-added fund and a Europe value-added fund, and that became fund two, and then we went on to fund three, etc. through until we sold the business ultimately in 2013 to BlackRock. Right, right. Well, I guess just just going back to that time period then when you're raising capital and you're starting to increase the number of projects you're invested in, uh, diversify into other markets. Um, I guess one of the questions was, especially at that time period, um, you had this you know, massive amount of transformation going on um, within, especially within the Asia cities. Um, in your looking for opportunities, there at that time period wasn't a lot of information or a lot of transparency around information you know data was hard to 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 achieve or to get um 
how did you, I guess, look at that in terms of risk profiles with very little data available? And how do you make decisions about moving forward to manage some of that risk? Yeah, I mean, those times were, you know, at the beginning when a lot of the markets in Asia and Europe were just starting to open up to institutional capital. And you're right, there wasn't a lot of transparency. And that was partly the opportunity. And our approach was to be very much on the ground um, and, and very much employing kind of old land lease disciplines of risk management, project management, development management, uh, and being very hands-on in terms of asset management whilst always being a, a fiduciary. So we were pioneers in a lot of these markets. And, you know, that's why I moved from Hong Kong to Bangkok to Hong Kong to one of the first people in Lend-Lease to move to Tokyo in 2000. Um, and then into China, when that market started to open up, again, I moved with a very young family to Shanghai to really just sit on a rock for a year and just listen and learn and understand how deals were done and how to get information. And then we started investing. Um, and we did that approach in all of the countries around Asia and Europe, very hands-on, very much discipline asset project management approach and really exploiting the kind of lack of transparencies in the market because we were there. We were the ones creating our own set of comparables and looking at different sub-markets and looking at demand drivers, um, et cetera. In fact, back at that point, we had a strategic decision to make. Would we go into China in a big way or India or both? And after a few trips to both markets, we decided that China was big enough and that that kind of won hands down because of the commitment to building out the infrastructure as opposed to India where on some of our research trips, we would go and visit a local grade A office building, which really didn't have any infrastructure around it. We had to go through dirt tracks to get to the grade A office building, and, and then the roads were built. So a very different kind of um, risk assessment we saw way back then in the early, early 2000s. That's interesting. I think it's interesting that you, you yourself personally spent time in each one of those places to really understand uh, the market itself. I, I guess, I mean, that kind of leads to then the, the judgment on the quality of the, the project, um, as well as, you know, a lot of these cities, uh, things were built really quickly. I mean, there was a need to house people. You had this migration into urban centers. Um, there was the, the, a lot of jobs being created. Um, so th there was fundamentals around that migration. But there wasn't always a aspect of quality. And I think, you know, you've said a few times that you, you come into a market and you're looking for ugly buildings to buy on great streets um, that you could fix up. And I guess in that, um, what was kind of the process of the deciding on what's the best value to add and create to those properties? And then how important, to your point, in terms of the difference between China and India, was what was being planned for that that street or that district or that community, either by government or other private developers, important in that decision making? So, kind of, you know, what was the process that you went through in terms of that evaluation, and then how important were those other factors? Yeah, and I think you know, obviously, real estate's a very local business, and it's extremely hard to generalize. Um, you know, Osaka is very different from Tokyo, for instance, and. 
You know, in the Japanese market, it's a, it's a very um, well-disciplined development market. It's very difficult and still is for a foreigner to come in and actually develop. And therefore, we chose in that market to, as you said, by, you know, nugly building on a, on a good street where there's good sub-market drivers um, and retrofit some of those older office buildings so that they were compliant to the current seismic code. And therefore, that really changed the profile of the building in the sub-market, which really enabled higher occupancy, higher rents, um, and have a different cap rate or a different exit. And therefore, that was a, a, a very good kind of play for us by fixed sell. And, um, you know, we acquired dozens of these older nine-story office buildings and retrofitted them, improved the operations, stabilized the rent profile and then exited. And that was back in, you know, the early 2000s, something that no one else was really doing, but we were committed to it because we had a very fundamental view on the sub-markets and how we could with good asset management and project management and light refurbishment really reposition these these properties to be quite valuable. And I think even today, there's still a market for that in a lot of the cities around the world where you know, more than probably 75% of the properties are more than 30, 40 years of age. And, you know, when you think about the sustainability challenge, the 2050 challenge, then that's the real key issue in Europe in particular. You know, these buildings need focused sustainable asset management plans today to enable countries and the whole region to achieve their sustainability targets. So, again, you know, everything's very cyclical. And I think the investment rationale today is a little bit like it was 20 years ago in terms of a very clear focus on the asset plan and discipline execution to achieve, amongst other things, those reductions in sustainability targets. In, in terms of buying buildings and the communities, you know, our first investment in China was in Shintandi, buying a office building. And, you know, we really studied that sub-market and we saw that as just an absolute, quite frankly, world-class example of how public and private can work together to create a very walkable, vibrant area where people can live, work and play. And, you know, from 15 years ago to today, it still continues to evolve and to change and to bring in new trends in terms of shopping behavior and digitization and uh, safety and um, more community involvement, the arts, culture. So again, that's a really important feature of our investment thesis always is what's going to happen to the character of the local area, which is really something a lot more, you know, third, fourth dimension from the traditional looking at demand and supply drivers. No, that's a really interesting. I mean, Shintendi is, a, um, I think, one of those kind of first real good examples of, of adaptive reuse in China. At that time, we were working on you know massive uh, master plans uh, in, in multiple cities, and every time it was a challenge to have the development community think about preservation, adaptive reuse. When the main notion was, well, let's we need everything new. We need it bright and shiny, and it needs to be big. Um, and so there's so much kind of just coming in and raising everything. And I think that really demonstrated that there was a need uh, and a market for these um, types of buildings. 
Yeah, and I think globally now, particularly with the pandemic and the challenge of having people return to the office, for instance, it's even more important that developers and public-private partnerships curate an experience for people to really refresh um, and, and to really you know, re-engage with people and the environment, you know, in a way where they can reduce the stress, quite frankly, right? I mean, it's, it's a very stressed world and life we all lead. And I think the whole ecosystem of real estate has really picked its game up materially in terms of the quality of the air in the buildings, the quality of the circulation, uh, the access for handicapped people, etc. And I think that's really going to be a big, differentiator over time from a good building in a in a traditional submarket to a building that has a role w- within an ecosystem in a little community which might be residential part office part retail part community centers part government part innovation with transportation coming through so i really think thematically the the, the best investments are those where people think through those issues and again even more important today is just thinking through mental wellness and how the the real estate community can really help everyone get through this very difficult time. Even things like pets, I mean, very important for people. They played a huge role in the last 18 months in people's lives. So that's going to be, again, aspect of mixed-use developments that people need to think about, again, a lot more. I mean, when you're walking right. around parks, it's it's really interesting, right? We've all done a lot of walking with pets and with kids over the last couple of years. It, it's amazing when you're walking dogs how people smile and they want to talk to you. Or if you've got a little yeah. baby, everyone wants to smile. So, a, again, it's these moments of joy that are really interesting for developers to curate when they're thinking through master plans and when people are thinking about you know, how to revitalize maybe a stale community area that has had its stay possibly, but could come back. One thing that you mentioned in terms of of cycles and cycles of development um, and some of your experience with this, I mean, 2007, we're at the top of the market. Uh, I think you, you, you know, raised uh, the third opportunistic vehicle fund, close to $4 billion in that fund. February 18th, you signed, uh, had the signing ceremony here in Singapore with Grace Fu, who was the Minister of State, uh, National Development at the time. Um, Dr. Chung uh, Kun Hing from URA was at the signing ceremony in terms of Asia Square Tower. Uh, it was one of the largest foreign direct investments at the time into Marina Bay. It really helped to kick off um, a lot of the, the future of, of the Marina Bay area. Um, then, you know, six months later, Lehman Brothers and the world kind of turns. Can you maybe go through kind of your thinking at that time, what the process was that you needed to go through in terms of convincing your stakeholders, your investors to stay with you, what you needed to do in terms of repositioning to be agile? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, real estate cyclical and every 10 years or so, you, you're going to go through a super cycle and, you know, it's very hard to predict that as it was back in 2008, you know, nine. But, you know, the whole Marina Bay investment started back in 2006 when um, 
the URA, the Singapore Planning Authority, actually went to MIPA and presented their vision of Marina Bay. And it was clearly world-class, clearly very thought-provoking, um, huge commitment to having a lot of the infrastructure, um, you know, like district cooling, heating systems underground, underground expressways, um, you know, massive parks. It was clearly going to be a differentiator um, for Fortune 500 tenants and, and local tenants in, in Singapore. It was going to be an attraction. Um, it was going to create everything that I talked about a few moments ago in terms of a place to live, work and play. Um, when the crisis came, um, you know, it was a period where we needed to very quickly have a couple of cold showers, relook at the underwriting, talk to all the investors, and those those were very kind of, you know, courageous discussions on, um, you know, the different scenarios from scorched earth through to a quick rebound. Uh, we replotted mm-hmm. the underwriting, uh, stuck to our knitting in terms of being the development and asset manager. Um, and curated a wonderful design that was very innovative, particularly in terms of um, joining the two buildings with a very large public space that, again, really emphasised the ability to curate a lot of experiences down there for the tenants. And, you know, we've concluded those those, um, developments. They leased up very well. Uh, Rents came back. And we finally exited them. We didn't obviously make as much money as we had thought, but you know that's to be expected when you go through a um, kind of foreseeable um, uh, global crisis like that. But it was a crisis and a dislocation in the capital markets. It wasn't actually a dislocation in fundamental demand. Those buildings leased up very strongly to you know the likes of Allianz, Citibank, etc., and you know those big occupiers. They looked at things like sustainability and Asia Square was, you know, one of the first platinum lead buildings in, in Singapore, for instance. And all of those factors really made a difference and still puts those buildings in the market today as being a very premium um, international property. That's true. And it, it did help extend the urban fabric of, of the downtown core. Um, and I think the open space that was created at the ground plane is... Um, used incredibly well in terms of the diversity of use and the ability to capture people, the mix between retail, uh, commercial, and some of the curated um, events that happen in that space. It's quite lively. Um, so it, it, I think in terms of the, the contribution to the extension of Marina Bay is fantastic. And you can now see now, you know, the connecting of, of Asia Square to some of the newer properties that are coming up around it. I think what was interesting going through the global financial crisis is that we haven't really seen anything like it since. So, you know, there's been now over 10 years of no major dislocation in the capital markets or in the demand fundamentals. And and therefore, if you look at the whole sector, the whole industry, we've really had a um, kind of a Goldilocks period the last 10 years. And what always interests me is how we're developing our younger people in, in the sector in terms of mentoring and, you know, saying that real estate is cyclical, things don't always go up and you, we need to take that into account in our kind of asset management and, 
and planning. And if you look at what's happening in China today, for instance, you know, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That the market hasn't seen that type of downturn there for, for a decade or so. And, and therefore, this, right. is, this is going to really create a whole new kind of reevaluation of how people underwrite assets and how they communicate with investors and how they work through what could be, you know, some quite troubling situations that could have regional and possibly uh, global ramifications. So I do want to talk about uh, kind of what's next and the evolution uh, of cities. So Asia Cities 4.0, I think you've been involved in a few of these um, evolutions. And this, and I think especially when you look at the skyline of, of any Asian city, it's changed tremendously over the last 15, 20 years. Now, with this next round of rejuvenation, there's opportunities uh, to be very proactive in how the cities can be rejuvenated, how they can attract you know, more people, talent, and I guess this, this shift to it. So in terms of how this transformation happens, you've touched on a few, few parts to it, uh, but what do you see in terms of this next evolution of, of especially the Asian cities? Well, I think COVID clearly is going to dominate developers and planners' views on the industry moving forward, no doubt. I mean, people's psyche, people's behaviour has now fundamentally changed in even, you know, little respects that are quite significant, like social distancing. And, and therefore, if you're planning to develop an office, then you need to look at you know, all the old paradigms of space per person and really rethink that. Um, you know, in New York during the pandemic, it was very difficult for people to um, get up to their workstation and, and get down to the ground floor because of social distancing, getting in and out of lifts. So there are just so many considerations now that developers need to, to think through. Um, but I think it's a great opportunity. I, I, I think... It's a chance to really reconnect and focus on what's important, which is, you know, the human and having them being an energized, productive, happy, um, you know, kind of um, collective working for companies and working for communities and, and working for governments. Um, and that's going to take a lot of thought. That's going to take a, a lot of experiments and, and trial and errors. But those, those, issues, including social distancing, they're here to stay. I don't think this is going to go away in, in two, two, five years' time. I think it's in people's paradigm now. So are there are certain cities that you think are being more proactive with this? Because I, you know, some of that comes down to land use change, mix, guidelines. Um, so are there some cities that you could point to in terms of being kind of ahead of the curve in this? I don't think there's any standout thought leaders at the moment. I mean, I think it's, it's too early in the game. There's, there's lots of balls and issues in the air. I, I dare suspect that the, the cities that will come out of this possibly the best will, will be those that can be affordable for business and those cities which have very disciplined and very good processes of, of planning and, um, putting out master plans and refining them. So clearly Singapore is a great example. Um, undoubtedly, you know, Tokyo, again, has, has demonstrated great land use uh, and planning for, for ever since the war. So 
I, I think there's going to be, um, you know, clear winners, but we're not going to know who those winners are until we can look back in 10, 15 years' time would be would be my view. But I think it's an open field. I, I think all cities have a great opportunity to rethink how they can procure and curate precincts that are a lot more attractive than possibly what they would have been if we didn't have this pandemic. Right. And I guess, I mean, that, that's an ideal role for an uh, institute like Urban Land and Land Institute in terms of how we bring together a very interdisciplinary group of people. Um, and I guess, I mean, to that point in terms of, you know, voices of ULI. So, Simon, we, you know, we, we're both global trustees within um, ULI and we work together, you know, in the... 2010-11 in Southeast Asia in terms of being able to create a foundation for um, urban land to establish councils in several countries, Uh, both quite passionate about the role of of ULI and that shaping of the future. I guess I want to ask you a little bit about the the mission. Um, The mission of Urban Land Institute is to shape the future of the built environment for transformative impact in communities worldwide. Um, what does this mean to you and, and how does this tie into those hopes and aspirations for this next evolution of city transformation? Yeah, it's a great topic. I mean, you know, when you and I started in Chicago, I think in the 50s, you know, the vision, the mission was about efficient use of land. I, I believe that's the same mission today, although it's been further articulated over the last two years. But the salient differences now really kind of bring together a broader set of challenges like how does infrastructure and real estate come together in a more effective manner, uh, particularly as, you know, cities urbanise? How do we use effectively the area below the surface of the land? You know, again, Singapore um, and other countries in Europe do amazing things under land by thinking through land use and what could be put below the ground, Um, rising sea levels, climate change, all these factors now are other critical dimensions to, you know, what was previously quite a traditional land use kind of discussion. And I think ULI is very well positioned to facilitate and process those discussions in, in a way that Quite frankly, there isn't the commercial freedom to do in organisations because of their commercial imperative of, you know, buying a piece of land, developing it, selling it or getting a good yield. I think the the winners, the best long-term investments are going to have to think through all those other issues I mentioned now in addition to how to make money. And therefore, I think... Utilize role and utilize global network and the way that it brings to the surface different advisory committees and different case studies and examples will really expand the development equation. And that's something that investors are demanding um, and investment committees are demanding for, for very good reasons. So I, I think the equation has certainly changed from, well, what's the most efficient use of that land to what is a sustainable, productive use for the land considering the broader ecosystem? 
particularly with growing populations and, and limited land. I think that's kind of the big new issues. Right. And I guess, I mean, it, it also gets to the core of the value you create. It's not just the financial value, but the social environmental value is a component of that assessment. And I think that's where you know, some of the capital market, especially recently, is demanding a lot more. And so it's not just about the bottom line return on the financials. Yeah. And, you know, in the capital markets, you have sustainability or green bond financing. Um, you have a growing number of investors who signed up to various um, sustainability pledges and organizations where they can't any longer invest in investments in real estate that don't meet the requirements of ESG, etc. And therefore, that's a, that's a very different dynamic happening in the industry right now. And with that comes, quite frankly, a lot of extra time and effort to think through that and compliance. And that might over time kind of rationalize the industry a little bit as well, because the smaller GPs might not be able to keep up with the implicit overhead of having to now think through so many other dimensions of their business in developing and managing um, investment properties. Well, thank you very much, Simon. It's been a great discussion and I truly look forward to how you pull a lot of those different parts, uh, both on the you know the investment side as well as these human and social issues uh, into the areas of capital land that you'll be focused on moving forward. And I look forward to the impact that you'll be having over the years to come. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Scott. We've enjoyed the discussion and really look forward to re-engaging with everyone back in Asia-Pacific from next month and uh, reconnecting with your lives. So thank you very much. Thank you, Simon, for joining us on this first episode of Voices of ULI. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You're probably listening to this podcast at the ULI Asia-Pacific Reimagine, and I hope you're enjoying this unique interactive event and find inspiration in reimagining conventional ideas about our cities, business, and life in the ever-changing world of real estate. In the next episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Chung Kun Hing, Chairman of the Center of Global Cities at the Ministry of National Development in Singapore.